Turn to Ephesians 2. (coughs) Continuing our study of Ephesians, we are in chapter 2, spending at least one more week in verses 1 through 5. So I will read Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Follow as I read. This is the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. So, uh, in verses 1-5, through at least for now, we're looking at these two sets of uh, contrasting realities. The first one that we looked at over the last couple weeks is death to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us were born that way. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, God made us alive together with Christ, the text says. This is true of you even if Uh, you were so young when you started following Christ that you don't ever remember a day when you weren't following Him. When when you were born into this world, it was as if you were dead at the bottom of the ocean in your sins. All of us were. But in Christ, God rescued us from death and brought us to new life. It's all grace. It's all God. He gets all the glory. By God's grace, we have been rescued from death and brought to new life. I showed you the text in Ezekiel 37 about the boneyard. and um, The the world is a spiritual boneyard, spiritually lifeless, and God is bringing the bones to life. We are uh, much like, exactly like in Ezekiel 37. The bones come to life and become a living army. That's what we are. A living army of Christians in the world uh, that started out as spiritual bones. So, No one has a boring testimony, something I've been trying to say to you over the last few weeks. If you're a Christian, you have a powerful, miraculous testimony. You were dead, God made you alive. Last week we had my brother Tyler in here to share his story, which is certainly a good picture of this. He was dead, he's now alive in Christ. Um, The next thing I want us to look at in verses 1-5 through is this contrast, the second contrast that I see that jumps out at me, the contrast between wrath and mercy and grace. So look at the end of verse 3. It says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a sobering statement. When we were born, we were children of God's wrath. That was our nature. We were born in sin... 
And sin earns God's wrath. We were born children of God's wrath. This is true um, for all of mankind. We were by nature, by our very birth, what, what is natural to us as humans, by nature we were children of wrath. So was the rest of mankind. We need to soak in that for a minute. We need to contemplate um, God's wrath. So when you think of God's wrath, anyone, what is the first Bible story that comes to mind? Say again. Noah. No, I meant the Oh, yeah, I was like, that one's pretty... That's okay if that's what you think. Yeah, no, that's good. I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I know about Noah, but uh, what were you saying? There you go. Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah and the flood. Um, yeah. Thank you. Look. Yeah. Ark of the Covenant, uh, Indiana Jones. I just like. No, I, yeah. I know of the story. I don't know the name. Thank you, Jeff. Would you like to teach? <laughs> All right. Um, those are good answers. Let's take a look at Sodom and Gomorrah. So turn to Genesis 19. If you haven't been in this class very long, um, in our studies of the New Testament, we're constantly flipping back to the Old Testament. Why is that? Because the Bible is a unified whole. And uh, you could say it another way, the fruits of the New Testament find their roots in the Old Testament. It's the same God. It's the same plan of salvation, Old Testament and New. It's just that our salvation is uh, fleshed out throughout the Scriptures and comes into focus in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, uh, I said recently in a lesson in Ephesians, in the Old Testament we have promises, we have people, we have pictures, we have prophecies, and they all lead us to Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of these promises and people and pictures and prophecies. So the best way to read our Bibles is to put a proverbial nail through the passage that we're reading or studying in the New Testament and find its coordinating passages in the Old. Uh, For me, that's not very hard because my Bible has little things in the margin where it, it, you know, there's a letter L by verse 36. And I look over here, 36 L, and it gives me seven verses. And a lot of them are often Old Testament. So... One recommendation I'll make, if you don't have a Bible like that, it'd be good to have that, just to have the, the coordinates uh, in the margin somewhere. Um, <clears throat> so one of the reasons I'm always flipping Old Testament and New is just so you know how your Bible fits together. Another reason is I really want it to seem smaller to you. I know that the Bible can, can feel overwhelming, but the more that you understand that it's a unified whole and the more that you understand how it fits together... The less overwhelming it gets, and I think the more freedom you feel in digging in it for yourself. So, in Genesis chapter 18, we find Sodom. Um, chapter, in chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, God says, Because the outcry against Sodom is great and their sin is very grave, He's going to go assess the matter. You know, it's like the sins of Sodom are screaming up to heaven, and He's going to go check it out. <laughs> then in verses 22 through 33, there's this section of Abraham interceding for Sodom. 
Um, one of the reasons that Abraham is interested in preserving Sodom is because his nephew Lot is there with his family. But, you know, that section goes something like this. Abraham says, Lord, will you sweep away everyone? Um, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people there? Are you going to punish everyone? And God says, if I find 50 righteous people, I will spare the whole. Abraham again, well, will you destroy the whole place for a lack of five? So what if there's only 45 righteous people? God says, if there's 45 righteous people, I will not destroy them. It gets, Abraham gets them all, all the way down to 10. And uh, God says, for the sake of 10 righteous people, I will not destroy this place. So, after Abraham intercedes for Sodom, the next thing we get to is the beginning of chapter 19. And the next thing that happens at the beginning of chapter 19 is that two angels appear at the gate of Sodom and Abraham's nephew Lot convinces them to stay with him for the evening so that they can get washed and they can get fed. Um, They agree. Now that night, the men of Sodom the men of Sodom surround the house and say to Lot, Hey Lot, we know you have some men staying with you. Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. That's in the Bible. Genesis 19. Lot pleads with them not to act so wickedly. And in response, he offers his virgin daughters to them instead. Brilliant. Yikes. Not a great response, Lot. The point is, the whole thing is a chaotic, sinful mess. The men of Sodom refuse the the young girls because they know what they want. What they don't know is that the men that they're trying to sleep with are actually angels. So as soon as they try to break down the door, the angels strike them with blindness and they're groping around and they can't see where they're going. And now it's go time. And the angels tell Lot to take his wife and daughters and get out of town because they were sent here by God to destroy the city. By the way, why did Lot get to escape? Was it because he was so righteous? No. No one in the whole deal was righteous. If there was someone that was righteous, the place wouldn't have gotten destroyed. That, and it's made clear that Lot is not righteous because, you know, why is that detail about him trying to give his daughters over in there? To show us, Lot's not righteous. He's got sin in the game too. Lot was the recipient of God's mercy and grace. Look at Genesis 19, verses 15 through 17. As morning dawned, this is the next morning after the men of Sodom have come and what I just said. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. That'll be... You need to know that in a minute. Um... Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. So, not only did Lot try to give his daughters to the sexual predators, but he lingered in the face of God's wrath. But, the text says, the Lord being merciful to him, 
The angels seized him. God went after him anyway. He didn't know what he was doing. The angels seized him and his family and brought him outside the city. This was God's mercy to them. Look at verses 23 through 28. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The angel has just told them, don't look back. Verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So Abraham gets his answer. No one was righteous in that place. Consider God's wrath in response to sin. Now, some might think that's a little much. You know, a little archaic, a little barbaric. What we should think is how offensive must sin be to God. God is holy. Sin is utter rejection of God's holiness and His His purpose for humanity. God created us to live for Him and His glory. So when we get to places like this, it's hard to comprehend because we live in a world that doesn't say these things, but we should say, God is holy. How offensive must sin be to God? God's wrath is not an overreaction. In fact, God's wrath is not reactionary at all. God's wrath is His just response to sin. But I also want you to see in this passage about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah that God's wrath does not cancel out His mercy and grace. God pours out His wrath while at the same time extending mercy and grace to Lot and his family. Now, just a few chapters earlier, some said when you think of wrath, I think of the flood. Just a few chapters before this, God wipes out mankind with a flood in response to sin, but He preserves Noah and his family in the ark. It's the same themes. God's wrath, His just response to sin, that's the flood. And at the same time, His mercy and grace is extended to Noah and his family. Mercy, uh, not getting what you deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. So, with that in mind, back to Ephesians 2. It says that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All mankind is born in sin, born children of wrath, destined to receive God's wrath for all eternity. And really, when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then we get to the New Testament and read about eternal fire, I mean, Jesus Himself talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. We should say, we think, you think Sodom and Gomorrah was bad? I mean, that's just a picture of the eternal fire and sulfur in hell. You think the flood was bad? That's just a picture, a glimpse into the torrent of God's wrath that will be poured out on the unbeliever for all eternity. We were born children of wrath. We were destined for destruction under God's wrath for all eternity. Now, keep reading the passage in Ephesians 2, moving into verse 4. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. I'll never forget Dr. Young doing a sermon a few years ago in Ephesians, and he said something tacky about the God's butts or something like that. You know. But anyway, this is a major shift in the passage And it's very important. Just those two words. Um, 
but God, being rich in mercy. Sounds familiar? God's wrath doesn't cancel out His mercy. Remember, God poured out His wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah while at the same time extending mercy to Lot and his family. Uh, God poured out His wrath on mankind while at the same time extending mercy to Noah and his family. We were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us by His grace. Now, maybe you don't tend to think about it this way, but the shocking thing in these passages with Noah, with Sodom and Gomorrah, in Ephesians 2, 1-5, through 5, the shocking thing is not God's wrath. God's wrath is simply what has been earned. God's wrath is His right and just response to sin. The shocking thing is that there is mercy and grace for the sinner. So if you're in a courtroom and there's a murderer on trial, it's not shocking when he gets a life sentence, is it? No. Um, In some sense, you're glad that justice has been served. That is the response of justice. The shocking thing is when he goes free, right? Now, maybe you don't think you have a whole lot in common with a murderer. I have never killed anybody. Well, Jesus comes along and he takes that law, those Ten Commandments, a whole lot deeper to the heart level and he <laughs> says that a man who has been angry with someone has murdered in his heart. So he says that If you've ever been angry, unrighteously angry about anything, you're a murderer at the heart level. Now, while unrighteous anger may not deserve the same punishment in human courts, and it it shouldn't, um, it is deserving of the same punishment in God's courts, death and hell. I always go back to the beginning in the garden. um, One sin... And the curses come and God kicks Adam and Eve out of His presence and shuts the door and locks it. One sin. God is holy. He knows no sin. One sin is enough to separate us from God forever. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, He saved us by His grace. Saved us from what? Same thing He saved Noah and Lot from. He saved us from His wrath. As we read stories like Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, we should say, well, the wrath makes sense. I mean, that's what has been earned. If Jesus is right, and He is, He's Lord, and and anger is really murder at the heart level, earning of, of God's punishment for sin, um... That's just what has been earned. But, but what is this mercy business? Could it be that God could have mercy on a sinner? That's really the scandal of the whole thing. And indeed it could, and it is. Um, now, in human courtrooms, if the murderer goes free, usually that's because justice has been compromised. You know, there's just no way around it. He didn't get what he deserved. Um, but God made a way... For justice to be upheld, His wrath to be poured out, and His mercy and grace to be lavished on you and me. So earlier I asked you what place in the Bible, what story in the Bible comes to mind when you think of 
God's wrath. What's the first Bible story that comes to mind in Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, Noah and the flood, touching the ark. Um, but you know where we get the fullest picture of God's wrath? On the cross. The worst thing that happened to Jesus in His death was not nails through the hands and nails through the feet. The worst thing was not a crown of thorns. The worst thing was not being publicly shamed and humiliated and spit on and lashed and tortured and beaten. The worst thing that happened to Jesus was He bore the full weight of God's wrath. God's righteous and just anger toward sin, toward your sin, and toward my sin was poured out in full on Jesus on the cross. Here's a quote for you from R.C. Sproul. Ultimately, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. So, all of the stories throughout human history where God's wrath is displayed, these are only glimpses into God's wrath. But on the cross, every last drop of the full cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for His people. His wrath was poured out. His justice was upheld. Our sin was punished. Um, Now, in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that God's wrath does not cancel out His mercy and grace. But on the cross, in the death of Jesus, we find that the fullness of God's justice and wrath, and at the same time, we find the fullness of God's mercy and grace. On the cross, in the death of Christ, we find the fullness of of God's justice and God's wrath at the same time, the fullness of His mercy and His grace. Now look, I know that uh, wrath is not the most popular of topics in our world today. In fact, if I'm choosing one to speak to you about, uh, I probably don't pick wrath today. But I'm not choosing, I'm just trying to teach through a book, and there it is, staring me in the face. So um, we need to talk about it. I know it sounds barbaric to a postmodern mind, But the postmodern mind is foolish. God's wrath is real. It's right. It's just and holy. We have to think about and understand God's wrath. Without God's wrath, you have no context for God's mercy and grace. And even worse than that, without God's wrath, Jesus doesn't die. He, He didn't go to the cross to appease men. He went to the cross to bear the fullness of God's wrath to appease God. Without Jesus' death, there is no satisfaction of God's wrath. Without Jesus' death, there is no salvation. God's wrath is terrible. God's wrath is right. But praise God, His wrath has been fully satisfied in Jesus' death for you and for me. Your salvation has been fully accomplished. He said so. It is finished. You are no longer guilty in God's sight. Your sins have been fully paid for. Your sin debt has been fully forgiven. All because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That is His mercy and His grace to you. Is that He made a way to satisfy His wrath and His justice. Not on me. Not on you. On Him. He rose from the dead. Um, He defeated death and He offers His mercy and grace to the world. So, a couple applications. Um, Number one, rest. Rest, rest, 
rest in His mercy and His grace. Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? There is no more wrath for you. Not a drop. No more wrath. I love what my brother said in here last week. He was um, talking about a very painful time in his life when on the day that he was going to propose to his girlfriend, she broke up with him. And um, very deeply painful for him, very formative time for him. But one of the things that was fixed in his mind from the start of that is that this pain is not God's wrath towards me. It's very important to know that when you're in a lot of pain. There's no more punishment. There's no more wrath. I'm no longer a child of wrath. I'm a child of God. He adopted me as His Son in Christ. He disciplines me, sure, with the loving discipline of the perfect Father. But Jesus took all the wrath. There's no more wrath. Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? There is no more wrath for you. God's wrath has been propitiated from you. Big Bible word. Forever removed from you as far as the east is from the west. You're no longer a child of wrath. In Jesus, you're a child of God. Forever secure in God's mercy and God's grace. Number two, if there is someone that is not trusting in Jesus for salvation, God's wrath remains. Um, In John 3, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Already, we have it. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting that it says that you must obey the Son. It says, believe in the Son, you have eternal life. Obey the Son, uh, or, or you won't see life. And I think it's interesting that it says obey. It points to our need to actually turn from our sin and actually follow Jesus. There's actual life change in, in this um, faith. True faith is not me- merely a mental recognition of something. In that sense, even the demons believe, Jesus says. True faith follows Jesus. And if you're not following Jesus, the door is still open. Turn to Christ. Number three has to do with our response. As those who have received God's mercy and grace and who do believe in Jesus... Um, the third thing I would say is in response to having received mercy and grace. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Now, He's not saying that our, our mercy earns us God's mercy. But He is saying um, that there's such a close link between having received God's mercy and giving mercy to others that um, if you have no mercy for others, you're proving that you have not been a recipient of God's mercy. God's mercy changes us. It softens our hearts. It allows us to deal with others in, um, in various ways and to give mercy. I'm not saying we do this perfectly. I certainly don't. But uh, those who have received God's mercy and God's grace in Christ do give mercy and grace to others. So, think about those people who have sinned against you. You probably don't have to look very far outside of your home to find a good one. Um, Or um, think about that person whose sin affects those people that you love and and just uh, wrecks them in, in some sense. What do you want for them? Do you want them to get what they deserve? Did you get what you deserve? 
from God? And you know what? Sometimes God asks us to extend mercy and grace to someone over a long period of time. Um, you know, you can think about someone who's suffering it in the church a lot of times walking with the poor or um, outcast or just those who are generally suffering is called mercy ministry. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a great example of this. You don't Actually, you can turn there. It's in Luke chapter 10. Thirty-three and following, thirty-three. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He felt something for him. He he broke for him and and desired to help him in his state. There's this man that was left on the side of the road for dead, and the good Samaritan comes to him. Uh, he felt something for him. He had compassion for him, but then he did some things. Number one, he binds up his wounds. It's probably pretty messy. You know, his wound, I mean, he's beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. He probably had some serious wounds. Mercy ministry is messy. Number two, he set him on his own animal. Giving mercy to someone is going to cost you some stuff. Number three, he brought him to an inn. And we'll see even further in the text. It's going to cost you some time. Taking him to an inn was not a short journey, you know, no vehicles. I mean, put him on his animal, walk with him. It's probably hot. Uh, it's going to cost you some time. Number four, he took care of him. You can't just throw money at it. Um, that's not the best way to do mercy ministry is only throwing money at a situation. Uh, but money is a part of it. So, uh, number five, the next day, this took a while. You know, I mean, he was obviously still there with him the next day. The next day, he gave two days wages to denarii, to the innkeeper, and said, whatever more you spend, I'll take care of it when I get back. So, God may have you walk with somebody for a long period of time. Um, maybe it's someone who's bound up in sin. And you know what? They didn't get there overnight. They won't get out of it overnight. But think about your own life. Think about how bound up in sin you've been. Think about how you've lingered like Lot in, in the face of God's instruction. But God has never-ending grace and mercy for you. He, he came and got you even when you lingered, even when you rebelled, even when you went the other way. He sought you out and He rescued you from, from the clutches of that which clung so closely to you. Go and do likewise. Imitate that same mercy and grace to others. Maybe it's someone who's suffering. That's a major part of the Christian life is, is uh, shouldering the burdens of others. You know, Jesus invites us all. Those who have heavy burdens, come to me, He says, and I will take your heavy burdens and give you my lighter one. He says that He will yoke us to Him. You know, a yoke is the thing that goes around two oxen's neck that binds them to go in the same direction. He will bind us to Himself and go with us through our pain. 
uh, wherever we're going. So, um, Jesus takes our burdens and He asks us to shoulder the burdens of others. Don't forget about those who are suffering. You know, oftentimes, I mean, some sufferings come in in short spurts. Oftentimes, seasons of suffering are long and drawn out and um, shoulder those burdens with people. Pray for them. Reach out to them. Spend time with them. Um, Be the the hands and feet of, of Jesus, the grace and mercy to them. It's really our opportunity and those who are bound in sin, those who are suffering, uh, of course, in sharing the gospel. You know, the the grace and mercy of God to mankind is encapsulated in a message. We don't get what we deserve. We get what we didn't deserve. Uh, God's mercy, God's grace in Christ. And we tell the world to come. So, are there those in your life that are Without hope, those are usually the best people to find. Those who are broken, the, the effects of sin, um, their own sin, sin against them. They're seeing very clearly, as we all do, that this world is very broken. Well, we have a hope that transcends this world. A hope for our own salvation and a hope for the salvation of the world. Um, all of that in application to having received mercy, looking to give mercy. So does anyone have any thoughts and or questions about that? About wrath, about grace, mercy? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But You are rich in mercy. You have loved us, Lord. You've rescued us from death. You've brought us to life. You've paid for our sins. Lord Jesus, You've absorbed the fullness of the wrath of God on our behalf. And Father, You look to us uh, with great affection as Your children, Your sons, Your daughters. There is no more wrath. Would You help us to believe that and understand that and rest in that, that there's not an ounce of wrath left for us who believe. Lord, help us in that context to receive Your discipline. You will discipline us because You love us. And sometimes it will hurt. And You will put us through things that We didn't think we could go through, and sometimes it will hurt. Uh, Lots of times it will hurt very deeply, Lord, but will will You assure us of Your goodness and Your grace to us that we are no longer children of wrath, we are children of the Most High God. We thank You, Lord, for Your mercy. We need it. I've been reminded even this morning of unrighteous anger in me, which is deserving of forever punishment, and You have forgiven me. You have paid for me. And uh, help us to be rooted in Your grace, rooted in Christ, rooted in Your Gospel. Um, thank You for Your mercy. We, we need it, and we're glad that we have it. In Jesus' name, Amen.